This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for September 15th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, online news editor David Grimm is here with Tales of Cat Tongues. Why do these originally desert-dwelling felines like fish so much, particularly tuna? Dave talks about receptors and taste tests designed to unlock cats' tongues. After that, I talk with researcher Cameron Aubin about an insect-sized robot that can walk, jump, and carry weight like a bug using mini-controlled explosions. And in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, associate editor of custom publishing Jackie Oberst chats with Bobby Sony, chief business officer at the Bioinnovation Institute, about how scientists can bring their million-dollar ideas to market. I give my cats special food. It's this extra-large kibble bit so that they have to chew and it cleans their teeth. And, you know, it's expensive, (laughs) but I prefer it so much to having to brush two cats' teeth in the morning daily. Dave, I hear you feed your cats sardines every day. We do. We used to feed them tuna, and then they got tired of the tuna, and uh, now they're on to sardines, very expensive canned sardines. And this is just the fish course for them? This is their wet food. They also, as your cats... They also get some dry food as well. The reason I am fishing around for your fish story is because that's kind of the focus of what we're going to talk about today. It never really occurred to me before reading the story that you wrote that cats probably were not adapted to eating fish when they were arising or when they were evolving. Fish were not likely to be on the menu because of where they were. Cats evolved from a creature known as the Near Eastern wildcat or the African wildcat. And As the name might suggest, this is a creature that comes from the deserts of the Middle East. And so you wouldn't expect a lot of fish in the desert. Of course, our cats evolved from that creature, so you wouldn't expect at least very early domestic cats to be eating a lot of fish either. Yeah, or to, you know, make it like a top treat for them. Exactly. Every cat I've ever known has loved tuna or sardines, or they've just been into that smelly, fishy stuff. Right. But we have evidence from Egypt that they did start eating fish thousands of years ago. Yeah, there's a cool, actually, Egyptian painting I linked to in the story that's from about 1500 BCE, so about 3500 years ago. So we're definitely in the hardcore ancient Egypt. And there is a picture of a cat, house cat, under a table eating what is clearly fish. 
I don't know if it's tuna, but it's fish. <laughs> Turning to today, you wrote about a study that took a detailed look at the cat's taste buds. And before this, it was it really known what cats actually could and couldn't taste? Well, we had a few clues. Actually, almost about 20 years ago, researchers discovered that cats can't taste sugar, which is kind of remarkable. They have a defective receptor that we and a lot of other animals have in our taste buds that allow us to taste sweet things. And apparently cats cannot taste sweet things, which I think at the time some commenter joked is responsible for cats' bitter personalities. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, be that as it may, so we already know or suspect that cats can't taste sweet things. Uh, cats also have a lot fewer bitter taste receptors than we do, although it's a little bit un unclear how that affects their palate. But we don't know what their other, uh, you know, there's three other tastes. There are sour, salty, and umami, which is a taste that was discovered in the last century. And that's sort of the, uh, the deep, savory flavor that you would find in maybe mushrooms and especially a lot of meats as well. So it seems like umami would be a shoe-in for cats, but they wanted to really prove it was a working receptor, was a working pathway in cats. How did they do that? They actually did a series of experiments. In one experiment, they actually uh, biopsied the tongue of a cat, and they looked for a couple of genes. These are called the TAS1R1 and TAS1R3. And in us, these genes produce, respectively, their own proteins that form this, what's called this heterodimer, this combined protein, is sits in our taste buds, or on our taste buds, actually, and allows us to taste umami. And we already knew that cats had the TAS1R3 gene, but this team confirmed that they also expressed the 1R1 gene as well, which means that they at least have the molecular machinery needed to detect umami. So they have both partners of the dimer that come together and detect umami at the taste bud level. Right. Once they knew that there was this receptor there, that umami was likely something they could taste, they went to the taste test. What did they give these cats to kind of further clear this up? Right. Well, this is the most fun part of the study. They actually took 25 cats, which I think they adopted out after the study. This was done by the Mars Pet Food Company. You wouldn't expect NIH probably to fund a study like this. But anyway, they took 25 cats. It was just 25 cats. And they gave them a, a choice between two bowls of water. And, and sometimes it was just a plain bowl of water. And sometimes the water had these various mixes of various amino acids and what are called nucleotides. And these molecules in us, some of them very specifically activate our umami receptors. And they want to see, well, if they could flavor essentially the water with these various amino acids and nucleotides, would the cats be more attracted to the bowls that sort of replicate this umami flavor? This is to distinguish between the fact that, yes, the receptor is there and they have a preference for this. This is something that they care about and seek out. This is they actually are seeking out something that should create this umami flavor in their mouths. So what were the, the top choices for these kitties? As researchers expected, the cats really preferred the bowls that seemed to be replicating that umami flavor. So that confirms that they're, not only do they have this receptor, but it seems to be working. And act, in fact, umami was the taste they seem to prefer the most. Cats are obligate carnivores, which means they have to eat meat to survive. And so you would expect that if there's one taste they're really going to zero in on, it's going to be the umami taste. That's umami. But I mean, fish is probably going to have that flavor. But why does it seem to top the list of favorites for so many cats? 
Well, and it wasn't just fish. You know, what the team discovered is the cat seemed unusually attracted to this very specific combination of an amino acid and a nucleotide that's found in high levels in tuna. And so what this suggests is that not only cats seek out umami, but there's something very special about tuna that really, as uh, one of the researchers told me, really hits that umami sweet spot for cats. Why are the researchers, you know, so dead set on figuring out exactly what's going on with umami and maybe tuna in cats? Well, again, this is, you know, a study done by pet food companies. So obviously they are trying to make their pet foods more palatable. And if you can find that magic ingredient that's going to make cats want to eat something, that's obviously a big boon. But also, and maybe more practically for any of us who've ever tried to give medication to a cat and perhaps almost lost an appendage in the process, you could imagine that, you know, if you find that sort of secret sauce, you could put on a pill or even something like a liquid that a cat has to drink for a medicine that if you if you can find that special ingredient there maybe just maybe Sarah more likely to eat it or drink it. Oh, that sounds amazing. All right. <laughs> this makes me want to give a taste test at home like maybe do tuna versus something else to see if if they have that preference. Well, right and and you know as I said at the outset not all cats are tuna lovers. Our cats loved tuna for a while and now they as cats are want to do they decided they don't like tuna anymore. There's an argument to be made that uh, cats should just be fed one thing anyways, that they need a balanced diet and tuna may not have everything that they need. So uh, it's a nice treat, but maybe not not everything that they need. Okay. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the online news editor for Science. You can find a link to the story we talked about at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with Cameron Aubin about the challenges of building powerful insect scale robots. This week in science, Cameron Aubin and colleagues wrote about powerful soft combustion actuators for insect scale robots or using tiny explosions inside of small robots to move them around, I guess. Hi, Cameron. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I think the key thing to start with here is insect scale. Bugs can do a lot of impressive things with very small bodies. They can jump really high. They can jump really far, carry things, many times their own body weight. But when it comes to similarly sized robots, it's just not the same. So, Cam, why have robots not been pulling their weight, so to say? When you think about insects, yeah, we've all tried to like swat at a fly or like chase a creepy crawly around the house or something. But robots at that scale have these limitations because of their size and because of scaling laws. And so when you think about larger robots, these are typically powered by things like motors and pumps and engines. And those things don't scale really well. Similarly, power sources like batteries, energy sources like batteries don't scale that well. And so you're left with a lot of robots at the insect scale, you know, from an inch long to even smaller that are powered by these really bespoke, unique actuators. Some of these are very power hungry and some of these are very difficult to manufacture. And there's all these different factors that go into that. But the main thing that we wanted to focus on was creating our own types of actuators that had increased performance that could sort of bridge the gap between robots and nature. Mm -hmm. So why would we actually want a small robot to be very powerful, very strong or very fast, like like Ant-Man? Yeah, right. Why do we we want that? Absolutely. It goes back to these scaling laws. I always always talk to my students in terms of scaling laws and the way that that math sort of dictates how the world works at different scales. And 
when you take a robot and you make it really small, things like a pebble, which wouldn't be, you know, a big deal for us walking along on the sidewalk, become a much more difficult, pronounced obstacle. And so we need higher performance for these small insect scale robots to be able to traverse different obstacles, different terrains, and exist at a scale where size really matters. (laughs) Why didn't we do this before? What's changed about the field or about technology that's allowed us to make small combustion happen like this? Yeah, so I think it's important to point out that we weren't the first to come up with doing combustion at this scale. Thinking back to the 90s and early 2000s, there was actually this movement that was in vogue of of creating these small-scale, traditional-looking rotary combustion engines. These were manufactured using, you know, micro-machining, and they're largely made out of metals, which are heavy for their size, obviously. They work okay. They have issues like thermal management and kind of balancing between leakage and stiction. In terms of putting them into robots, that's more of a recent development. There are some robots that use combustion as sort of a one-time actuation, and so not really conducive for continuous operation. And then there are a few that have onboard fuel reservoirs to operate completely untethered. But their unique way of, of doing combustion is not the way that we think of combustion. There's not a pop. There's not an explosion. There's not like a release of a flame front there. They're very slow, methodical actuations. They're not leveraging the total potential of combustion in that regard. Really interesting. So let's turn to the robot that you wrote about in your paper here. Can you describe a little bit what it looks like? Sure. So it's a quadruped. It has four feet. They're attached to these elastomer membranes, so like a stretchy piece of silicone rubber. And these are capping these very small channels inside of the robot uh, within which combustion happens. And it's, it's really split into two halves. And we can achieve combustion in either half independently so that we can get some sort of control. Like if we combust in the left half, it'll turn to the right. If we combust in the right half, it'll turn to the left. And if we combust at the same time, it'll move forward. The combustion is happening in the joints where the legs meet the body and kind of moving the legs whichever direction that you're talking about. Correct. There's these sort of central chambers where the combustion is initiated and then the flame fronts and the combustion and the expansion of gases propagate into those legs, which inflate. Those uh, elastomer membranes are kind of like little balloons that inflate and push the legs, and that allows the robot to leap off the ground. How big is this robot? You know, how tall is it? How much does it weigh? The robot is 2.9 centimeters long. It's about half that tall. Wow, that is really tiny. It's very tiny, and it weighs 1.6 grams, which for, you know, helpful real-life comparisons, I like to say that's about one and a half paper clips or slightly less than the weight of a gummy bear. Okay. So that's what we're working with right here. It's very, very light. Does it make noise when it moves around? It does, yes. It makes a a pleasant little popping noise. If it's driven at higher frequencies, and we can do tens of frequencies, the actuators individually can go up to 100 hertz. It does sound like a like a, a real combustion engine, like pop, 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 you know, that sort of thing. And it can get pretty loud, actually. But it's very small, like the combustion chamber that we're talking about here. How much explosion is there? Yeah. So when we talk about combustion here, we're talking about micro combustion, which is sort of the Wild West, you know, come to find out. It's, it's an area of combustion that's not very well understood. A lot of the sort of laws of laminar flame theory don't necessarily apply in practice. And we're we're talking, you know, 90 microliter volumes here, of which maybe 10 to 20 of those microliters are dedicated to 
methane, which is our fuel of choice, the rest of it being uh, pure oxygen. So uh, really small, really small explosions. Yeah. How is it different than explosions from movies or from the inside of a car engine? Like what's different about doing it in such a small space? The main thing is that the flame front, which is to say, when you think of an explosion, you think of like an action movie, you see these flames sort of erupt from an explosion. There's a great release of heat and and an inflation of gases and expansion of gases. That's all in miniature. And the flames themselves, they don't really have a chance to propagate very far before they sort of run out of energy. And that's because they're in a very confined space and a lot of their heat gets absorbed by the walls. And there might be acoustic phenomena even that are that are impacting this. But it's actually a phenomenon we were able to leverage. We're calling it passive quenching. And so when you look at our robot, you'll notice that there are no electromechanical valves on it whatsoever. It allowed us to keep everything pretty simple in terms of control and in terms of sizing. And the way we were able to get away with this is because we can create combustion inside of a localized volume and that flame front won't leave that volume. It'll just sort of blow itself out before it has a chance to, you know, shoot flames out the back of the robot. <laughs> yeah, this when you watch little videos of this robot, it does not look like it's on fire. Right, definitely not. <laughs> Let's do some comparisons here. Do you have any way of putting in context how strong or how fast these actuators are compared to what other people have been using in small robots? Definitely. So one of the things that's interesting about these actuators is that the force that it outputs. A lot of these other actuators used on board these insect scale robots can do sort of fractions of a newton, like 0.25 newtons. And our actuators in block force testing do 10 newtons almost. Okay. All right. So that's quite a bit more. It's a huge difference. And, and that huge amount of force relative to size allows us to do different gate patterns, which is interesting. So by tuning the amount of fuel and the sparking frequency and basically turning different knobs with how this robot performs, we can get it to jump really high, up to 60 centimeters, or we can get it to kind of crawl and skitter very quickly to about 17 centimeters a second. And then there's different jumping modalities that it can do in between those sorts of movements. So it's fast and strong and noisy. So it's not going to sneak up on you. <laughs> yeah, it is noisy. I should mention it. It also does something that a lot of these other robots don't do, which is like we talked about with insects, it carries a large multiple of its body weight. I've seen papers where people have put one or two grams on top of these these robots and they they struggle to kind of walk around or or really they're they're at sort of max capacity right off of the off of the shelf so to speak. Right, they carry their own weight. That's about is all they can do. Exactly. Our robot carries like 36 plus grams, which is something like 22 times its body weight and it can actually do a little bit more than that. And so it can chug along with the payload too. In this paper, the robot is tethered. So this is something that people talk a lot about with robotics. Like, does it have its own power source on board? How long can it operate? That's something that you're working towards removing, right? That's definitely the next step for this sort of project. You know, we talk about how these types of robots would be great for search and rescue or exploration or any number of things, but they're limited if you have a cable attached. Our goal is to put an onboard fuel reservoir onto these actuators and onto these robots from which it can take its own energy from. We think the whole thing might be a five gram payload. And, you know, again, we can carry a lot more than that. So that's what we're aiming for. That's the next step that might be five years away. That might be two years away. Who knows? Okay. What about putting a brain on this thing? So are we making the spider spies of the future here? <laughs> I like that. So part of untethering it would require giving it some amount of control. And so there's been a lot of work and a huge improvements in microelectronics 
to date powering robots of this scale, especially in terms of increasing the voltages from a different given input. So like putting a small battery on it, in some cases, and taking three volts from that battery and turning that into like 300 volts. That's definitely an area that we're, we're interested in exploring. And we're trying to put lightweight custom electronics on board to control something like the sparking or the ignition of the fuel and maybe uh, get a little more interesting in terms of our movement modalities as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are you going to make it a flying combustion spider? I mean, that would be the dream, right? <laughs> That's the dream. Okay. Flying is the toughest thing, right? So there, there's actually a scale where it's like walking, jumping, gliding, flying in terms of how difficult this is and how much energy it requires. Flying's at the tippy top. And so we would love to be able to create untethered insect scale robots that can really fly around for long durations, not just for a couple seconds. Thank you so much for coming on, Cam. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Cameron Aubin is a postdoctoral associate at Cornell University, and he'll be joining the University of Michigan as a professor in the Department of Robotics early next year. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Bioinnovation Institute, or BII. Custom Publishing Associate Editor Jackie Oberst and BII's Chief Business Officer Bobby Sony discuss how to help scientists thrive in the role of an entrepreneur. The views expressed in custom segments are those of the guests and do not reflect policies of science or AAAS. Hello to our podcast listeners, and welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office and brought to you by the Bioinnovation Institute, or BII, an international life science incubator in Copenhagen, Denmark. My name is Jackie Oberst, and I'm Associate Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. Scientists and entrepreneurs may appear to come from separate worlds. One spends time in the lab designing experiments and writing papers while the other focuses on developing marketing strategies and generating sales. Yet they have more in common upon further inspection. Both create and test hypotheses and develop solutions to problems, and both face similar funding and communication challenges. Enter Dr. Bobby Sony, Chief Business Officer of the Bioinnovation Institute, BII, a nonprofit innovation institute with a mission to develop products for the benefit of people and society. He and his team help spin out and accelerate life science startups. So, if you're a scientist currently at the bench or desk who dreams of one day becoming a CEO of your very own startup, these next 10 minutes could prove extremely valuable and is a lot less expensive than going to business school and getting an MBA. With us today, we have Dr. Sony. Dr. Sony, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's get to it then here. Did you aspire to be an entrepreneur early in your scientific career or did it happen by coincidence? It was actually part of the plan. When I wanted to enter my PhD program, my plan was always to enter into the biotech field. And that was an aspiration I had since I was in high school. Really? How so? I mean, were you like in a business club? What prompted you to go down this route? I read two books. One is The Billion Dollar Molecule, which was an insider report of the starting of Vertex. I read that in high school and I found that really inspirational. And the other was Gene Dreams, which described all of the new technologies that were going to change medicine forever, including you know, antibodies and, and things like that. And that was a true inspiration as well. And so you decided to go the scientific route where you could have gone to business school first, right? I mean, is going to business school necessary? Absolutely not, because I love the science. 
and I, I really enjoyed the science and I wanted to be a scientist, but I wanted to use the science in, in a very particular way and translate the science into making products that would help people. You know, and funny story is when I applied to my PhD program, I actually wrote that in my application letters that I wanted to get a scientific training so that I could later work in industry. And I had many advisors tell me, you should take that out. You should simply not give them the rope to hang you with because there will be people there that won't view you as pure enough or scientific enough. And you're lowering your chances by sharing your true motivation. So back when I did my PhD, I actually had to hide some of those intentions to work in industry and work in innovation. What I found interesting, at least what I'm doing now, is that as, as a former scientist, I can truly appreciate the sciences placed before us and that we get to look at. Rather than being an artist, I, I tell our team here, we're art historians and, and we see art and we understand where it's coming from and, and what it means. And it's, it's just a pleasure to be able to work with great scientists and understand what they're doing. So do you think business people and scientists, do they think differently? What are the similarities and differences between science and business? Well, I think there's certain human characteristics which are really important for success in trying to be an innovator or starting a company. And those human characteristics actually trump everything else, any training one may have. The challenge with scientists are they're trained in a certain way that their innate ability to talk to, to communicate what they're working on to people who aren't scientists is actually hampered. And that's probably the biggest hurdle for scientists in starting a biotech company, raising funds, is, is how they're trained and, and understanding who they're talking to. And so how did you get the training? I've completed my PhD and I had a choice between doing a postdoc and, and working at a biotech company. And I chose to work at a biotech company because that's what I always wanted to do. I was lucky enough that at the company I was at, we were working on second generation biopharmaceuticals. And I became project leader of some of these projects. So it was essentially like a, a master's in product development. And then I was able to outlicense some of these projects to pharma. And I enjoyed that process of observing my business colleagues doing that and was lucky enough to be able to start a career doing that at pharma. And so I sort of eased my way into it, as it were. So what do you now do at BII? So I manage our business development team. Our thesis is that we have science from all over the world, especially in Denmark, that's especially well-funded from academic funding, but isn't being translated into products. And we essentially have set up a program that funds and supports scientists to create their startup companies. And we help them through a variety of ways, including funding, training, helping them meet investors. And ultimately, our goal is to get those companies started and to get them funded by venture investors so that they can continue their, their path to market. How do scientists decide when they should create their own biotech company? It's a very good question. The most important thing is, is that the scientists have an idea that this could be useful to people. And from there, that's the start. And the most important thing I think scientists need to understand is that if they believe that, they almost have an obligation to go do it because it doesn't happen by itself. Someone has to be the custodian of the technology and get it to where it needs to go. And you are the custodian because it's essentially you're the one who understands it, knows it, and has the belief that can actually be useful. So you almost have an obligation to go, go try. So what challenges do scientists face and what advice would you give them if they want to become an entrepreneur? I, I think the biggest challenge is mindset and network because 
at their core, scientists, at least the ones we have in our program, are ultimately capable of creating a startup company. The human skills are there, the intellectual capacity is there, the, the passion is there as well. What is missing is an understanding of what it takes and who to talk to and the number of people required to get it done. So the mindset here is less about advancing the technology per se, but more about advancing the idea to a point where it will be funded and move forward in the form of a company and get to market. And that means you need to be able to talk to people in industry and understand what's important. You need to be able to bring people to your company or to your idea that know more about this subject than you do. And essentially, place people over technology in order to get to where you need to go. For scientists that are in academia, how does that work? The Tech Chancellor Office is a good first stop. They are, however, overwhelmed and understaffed. So I think it's also important to go find role models. So if, as a scientist, you wish to spin out your company, a very good person to talk to is one of your colleagues that's actually done this. And go ask how it's done. And they will have a network that you could tap into. And it's really important to talk to people who fund spin-out companies, who work in spin-out companies, and keep working your network until someone is willing to provide you with feedback as to whether this is doable or not doable, and then go from there. You got to network. You have to network. Mm -hmm. You have, and it's and one normally has the idea that the tech transfer office knows who to talk to, but many times they're viewing your case through the lens of. What intellectual property can I file? And how do I protect what you already have? And maybe we can license it to someone or we can spin it out. But the actual hard work of finding out what it is and defining it and scoping it, the founders are the best people to do it. Mm -hmm. So where can scientists go and look for funding? So typically that would be with early stage investors. I think one of the, one of the things we tell our founders is it's the overlap between great science, commercial need, and a fundable project where, where the companies get funded. So the job that needs to be done here is to understand from the investors, what is the fundable project within that technology that answers a great unmet need? And the way to find out is to ask and ask different people and get lots of input. It's in there. It's just a question of discovering it and pivoting the project in that direction. So scientists have to kind of learn to sell their research in a way? Scientists tend to think that's a dirty word. So the way we phrase it is that you're a custodian of the research and investors aren't interested in the technology. It doesn't sell itself. Mm -hmm. They're interested in you as the custodian of the technology and as the, as the founder. It's, it's a very important role. And what it means is if you have a great founder, you have someone who's able to tell the story of the science and what it can be in a way that different people can understand it. Bobby, it's been a lot of fun speaking with you. Thanks again for joining us. Our thanks to the Bioinnovation Institute for sponsoring this interview. Clearly the road from idea to product isn't straightforward. For researchers interested in becoming entrepreneurs in women's health and other fields, please read up on the Bioinnovation Institute and Science Prize for Innovation, found either at bii.dk or science.org. This podcast has been edited and condensed for length by Chris Connor, fellow podcaster of Life Science Marketing Radio, and me, Jackie Oberst. Thank you for listening.
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.